You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Please put your hands together for Naomi Brockwell. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Naomi Brockwell, and I've put together a talk called Privacy in the Digital Age, and I will show you this graph. So this is a great graph to look at uh, to try to figure out why privacy is important. So over the past few weeks, Tor bridge users in the Ukraine have spiked. Signal users in the Ukraine have spiked. People all over the world are realizing the value of privacy. Privacy can be the difference uh, between someone's survival and they're not surviving. So we're going to be diving into different privacy tools today. If the lessons from the last few weeks have, have proven anything, and I'm talking all the way back to Canada as well, talking about what happened with the Freedom Convoy, with people's bank accounts getting shut down, their money getting seized. We see what's happening in the Ukraine with people trying to flee, just being targeted by governments and it being a really difficult situation. I don't think we should here be waiting until the situation is so dire to be learning how to use different privacy tools. It's important to familiarize ourselves with these in advance uh, so that if the situa situation ever arises, we're well prepared to handle ourselves. So I'm going to be going over an overview of easy steps that we could be taking today to reclaim some of our digital privacy. Little things that can go a really long way to protecting our privacy. So there's probably a mix of people in this room here uh, who here has smart devices in their house. Yes, a lot of people. So like thermometers, Alexas, who just carries around their phone with them uh, everywhere they go? Everyone in the room. Uh, so is there anyone here who would be more than happy to disconnect from everything and live in a forest? Yeah, we got those people too. So we've got, I mean, this is what Liberty Forum is about, right? Now, I personally, I, I love tech. So my talk today isn't going to be about throwing out your devices and going and living in a forest, although that is a very effective way to reclaim your digital privacy is not be digital. But what I'm going to be uh, teaching you today is some practical tools you can be using where you don't have to become a Luddite. You don't have to you know, eschew technology completely. You can still use the internet and be connected to this wonderful digital world without compromising all of your data in the process. Now, I would say that the, one of the main problems right now with the use of technology is that most people don't understand the tech that they're using. So why would we? We're not all software developers or software engineers. You know, we didn't build these things. And one of the wonderful things about the modern age is that we've reached a point where I don't have to understand how my computer works to be able to turn that on switch and to use it. That's a really wonderful thing. We've broken down barriers to entry. We've made tech available to so many people. But there is a problem with this because, you know, even though we as society, we've taken down these barriers to entry, we've made life-changing technology accessible to more and more people, there is a danger in using things that we don't understand. So we are making trade-offs in our choices uh, that we're not even aware of, right? And so I think the first step in reclaiming our digital privacy is understanding the tech that we use a little bit better so that we can actually make informed decisions in our life, make better choices. Turns out that there are lots of choices for tech out there. There are some that are really bad for stealing your data. There are some that are actually pretty good. And so it's just a matter of understanding how your data is being collected so you can make more informed choices in your life. So Edward Snowden, he has often talked about this asymmetry of information that I just mentioned. 
He mentions it in his memoirs. He says, you know, uh, if you don't understand the tools that you're using, you're disempowered in your own life. You know, how can you take control of your decision-making if you're not making informed choices? Reading this book was a big catalyst for me, reading his memoirs, because it made me want to learn more about the choices I'm making in my life to become more empowered as an individual and not just be at the whim of the technology, but actually consciously opting into certain things and maybe opting out of others. So that requires a certain level of understanding of how this technology works. So I'm going to be diving into some of the trade-offs that we do make when we use certain technology. And the whole idea of this isn't actually to dissuade any of you from using certain products. It's actually just to inform you of what the trade-offs are so that you guys can be making these decisions on your own. You'll have to make them based on your own life. And trade-offs with security and privacy, it's always a trade-off with convenience on the other side. So I want to make things sustainable for you. I don't want to, you know, say, well, in order to have privacy, you have to wear this tinfoil hat and you have to, I mean, it's not sustainable, right? So it's all about telling you what the trade-offs are and you can decide whether they're things you're actually willing to make in your own life. So who here is concerned about their digital privacy? You know, they care about it. Is anyone here not really concerned and they're saying, you know, they're they're not really doing anything particularly interesting? Yeah, so there are people who who think that, you know, they're not not doing anything particularly interesting. Why should they be concerned that they're looking up sneakers on Amazon? The majority of people here are conscious of it and we've probably self-selected. We are at a conference called Liberty Forum. So uh, it's a certain type of people uh, that gets attracted to this. But actually the majority of people aren't that concerned about their privacy. Um, they, they don't think that they're particularly interesting. They don't think that anyone's going to be watching what they're, you know, in particular doing online. So the first thing that I'll mention is that mass surveillance doesn't care whether you're interesting or not, right? Your data is just hoovered up indiscriminately. So it's not that anyone's targeting you because you're interesting. All of your stuff is being collected whether you're interesting or not. So that's important to remember. So if there's a chance in the future that you might ever one day become interesting, you may want to start thinking about how much of your data you want to be collected. So the other thing that people say is, you know, I have nothing to hide. Uh, Privacy is for people who break the law. And it's like an interesting quip, right? Because laws change, societal norms change, but that data is forever. You may feel safe now. You may even like the government in power now, but another regime could come in and they have access to all of the data in perpetuity. That data doesn't just disappear. So everything you're putting out now, you know, that just stays in a a permanent database associated with your identity. It's collected and any future regime can have access to that. So as I said, societal norms do change and what's considered fine and acceptable behavior today in 10 years' time, it might not be. In 20 years' time, in 40 years' time, it might not be. So it is worthwhile making conscious choices about how much data you're actually you know, letting go out into the wild uh, because you really don't want too much stuff being swept up and collected about you for future regimes to use. If you think that there is a chance that in the future you might disagree with a future government... Well, you should probably protect your privacy right now because they're not going to be going up and saying, well, you know, you believed this thing 10 years ago, but I'm sure you're a changed person and things are different now. You know, they're going to be looking at your entire history. That's what they do. That's how they get people. They look at things that they have done decades ago and uh, say, well, you know, that's evidence that they're a criminal and we can we can target them. So it's just worthwhile thinking about, you know, whether or not we want to be making conscious choices about limiting the amount of data we let uh, run free. The other thing I will say, is that uh, some people say privacy is for those who break, break the law. And I would just say that 
not all laws are good. <laughs> Civil disobedience is actually a really powerful tool. It is a way for society to, you know, readjust their laws and to reevaluate what good laws are. I mean, how how could people have realised that marijuana, you know, should be legal without first trying that marijuana? Now, if you have a completely obedient society where no one can break the law, then you never have a chance to push boundaries and reevaluate whether, you know, the, the laws you have in place are actually any good. We definitely don't want a society where no one breaks the law. Uh, it's maybe a more controversial point of view, but I think it's a, a very important one. So given that privacy is important, as I said, privacy fatigue is a very real thing. Extreme privacy is incredibly difficult. It requires you to make huge sacrifices in your life that I'm sure most of you are not willing to make. Uh, so, you know, if, if there are people here who want to aim for extreme privacy, then you need to really know what you're doing or you're going to get burnt out really, really quickly. So if you still feel that that life is for you, one resource that I would recommend is this book, Michael Basil. He is a really, really brilliant person who has written extensively about extreme privacy. This book, he does updates on it every few months, actually. I think it's like every six months, pretty much. Uh, he puts out a new edition because he's constantly updating how, you know, reevaluating how our technology works, updating with the latest tools available. And he's really quite brilliant. He has a podcast as well. Uh, he has a website you can check out, Intel Techniques. So I would highly recommend that you look up him if you're interested in extreme privacy. But if you are not ready to make giant dramatic changes in your life and you would still like to carve out some free space in the digital world, maintain some area of privacy, that is what I'm going to give you uh, right now. So I call it practical privacy and it just starts by understanding how your data is collected. So a major way that data is connect collected um, is actually by companies, not necessarily by governments. It's by companies who are filling up these silos of information about us simply by collecting data that we voluntarily hand over. So just let that sink in. Most of the privacy violations going on in your life come from your conscious decisions to use products that are collecting data about you, just companies that you use, right? So... Um, what happens after that is governments, they get access to all of these silos. They then hoover that all up. They put it in permanent databases. One of the programs we learned about with the Snowden revelations was the PRISM program, which basically is where the government has access to the servers of these major companies. You can see the logos here already. They're the ones that the government has direct access to the servers of. And this was back in 2013 and prior. So you can imagine how many more companies there are where they just literally have access to their backend servers. They're just collecting everything there. Now, it's interesting that in the US, it is actually technical, technically legal for the government to do this. I'll explain why that is. It's something called the third party doctrine. So there was this legal case a long time ago where they were trying to get this bad guy and, uh, and basically they had to figure out how to get this information from these telecom companies. And there was a ruling that was made that said that because you voluntarily give your data away to these third parties, you don't own that data anymore. Those companies do, they can choose who to give it to. And if the government wants it and the companies choose to hand it over, the companies are perfectly within their rights to hand over that information. So that's something to keep in mind that, you know, we presume that when we enter into these contracts with companies and we're like, well, I'm going to use email and I'll read the terms of service and I just presume that every 
everything that I'm doing is just between me and the company. You know, there are a lot of presumptions in there that are actually false. It's a shame. Society should not be run this way. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible case that needs to be overturned. But that is how society currently is run. That anytime you're using a third party, which is literally everything we do on the internet, uh, the data that they're collecting, they have uh, the right to use that data how they want. And they, they hand it over to governments all the time as well. So once, this, uh, once the government gets this data, it's stored in permanent databases attached to our identity. And that's how the bulk of data about us is actually collected. It's not that the government is like directly probing all the individual computers. They're waiting for the private sector to collect all of that data and all of the heavy lifting for them. And then they just say, all right, now give us access to your servers. And then they collect that information afterwards. So we can make conscious choices to use services that collect less data about us. And we can also choose services that deliberately choose to put that data outside of their own reach. And there are lots of products out there that do this. And it's actually surprising um, that, you know, some of, the, some of the worst products out there for privacy, they're the most popular because they just, they have great marketing teams. There are great perks to the products as well. But when you dig into alternatives, it's really easy to switch over to things that actually are not collecting so much data about you. We're going to cover five broad topics uh, where I'll give you examples of alternative products you can be looking into, how they work, how they differ in terms of privacy collection. So uh, this is just the, a great step to intentionally minimizing the amount of data that you're putting out there that's able to be collected. So we'll look at web browsers, search engines, VPNs, email, and secure messaging apps. So let's get started with web browsers. I may have to skip some things because uh, it's a lot to cover. Oh, my God. All right. Web browsers, they're the gateway to the internet, different ways that they collect data. Let's run through them quickly. So we've got privacy in browsers is often leaked because uh, we allow websites to track us via things called cookies. So cookies are small bits of text that are downloaded to your browser and act like storehouses of information. So for example, they'll save like website preferences, language settings, login information, all of that stuff. And you can think of them as, as a way to like mark a visitor of that website so that you can recognize them, recognize their settings later on. So cookies could be really helpful. But it turns out that there are also cookies that help companies track you across multiple websites. So it's not just on that website that's saving your login details. There are these third-party cookies that get embedded you don't even know about, and they're tracking you and all of your activity across the web, which gets a bit scary. So for example, Facebook is a egregious uh, player in this space. They use cookies and trackers embedded in other websites, such as like the like and share uh, buttons that appear on shopping carts and all of that, it turns out that you don't even need to press these buttons and Facebook can still use them to determine which sites you visit and tie that to your Facebook identity. So it's important to recognize that when you see those little things on, on websites, it's actually uh, really invading your privacy. So you may want to look into browsers that block that sort of stuff. So another more subtle way that your privacy can be breached is through browser fingerprinting. Uh, so websites can detect unique environments so they can tell like, you know, the size of your screen and which plugins you have and all of those things. And they use that as a way to track you across websites as well. Uh, so there are also ways to block this fingerprinting. There are certain browsers that are great for that. We'll dive into that 
And then uh, you also got like not only do websites uh, track you, but the browsers themselves send back information about, uh, to the browser's parent company, uh, recording your visits, revealing details about your device, sending your, your keystrokes back when you type things in uh, to the browser as well. If you, I mean, I'll dive into that a little more when we talk about search engines. But autofill, huge <laughs> privacy violator. You should probably turn them off because you don't even need to press enter when you search for something in a, in a search engine. That autofill is immediately sending those keystrokes strokes back. Everything that you've thought about typing in, it's like, mm, I should probably not search for that on the internet. Too late. Google already has all that information. So uh, we'll dive into that more when we talk about search engines. But biggest offenders for browsers. So Microsoft Edge, Google Chrome. Who here uses Google Chrome? Everyone in the world uses Google Chrome, it turns out. Maybe people in this, uh, this room a bit more savvy. Google Chrome is incredibly popular. They are the worst offenders. So they have a staggering 64% of the market share in terms of uh, browser market. Their entire business model is to collect data about you and sell it. So, if you're using Google Chrome, you're just handing them a whole bunch of data that is then being siphoned up and attached to your permanent identity. Choose a different browser. Don't use Google Chrome anymore. I used to use Google Chrome. I used to use it for everything. It was really fast and it was great. And then I learned that every other browser functions basically exactly in the same way. And I didn't miss not using Chrome, but the difference is that these other alternatives are much better at protecting your privacy. So uh, I'll just dive into some of the reasons why Google is really, really terrible. I mean, uh, a year ago, they, Chrome said that they would start blocking third-party cookies. Then they worked, walked that back a few months later, said it wouldn't be in implementing it for another two years. Meanwhile, other browsers have blocked third-party cookies like years ago. This is something that Chrome still does. It's kind of egregious. Everyone else has already stopped. And they still walked it back. So they said that it's not going to be until 2023 that they're going to start blocking these things. And even then, they might walk it back again. It's Google, right? When they do that, Chrome said that they would never stop tracking you once they do this, they're just going to do different things with the data. They're going to put you into like cohorts. The data won't be as, you know, personally identifiable. There's lots of like vague language around what they're doing. But as I said, just don't use Chrome. There are so many better alternatives. Let's move on to Microsoft Edge. So uh, Microsoft Edge, there was a study from Trinity College in Dublin 2020, uh, in 2020 and, uh, and Edge was actually classified as one of the most egregious offenders in terms of privacy violations. So I will read a little bit of this excerpt. From a privacy perspective, Microsoft Edge and Yandex are much more worrisome from the other browsers studied. Both send identifiable, identifiers that are linked to the device hardware and so persist across fresh browser installs and can also be used to link different apps running on the same device. So that means that it's not just like a matter of you shutting down things or, or whatever, reinstalling. It's connecting to like your Mac ID of your actual computer, for example. So even if you reinstall Edge afresh, it, it's just connecting all of that information. It's pretty bad. So they said, as far as we can tell, this behavior cannot be disabled by users. In addition to the auto-complete functionality um, that shares details of web pages visited, both transmit web page information to servers that appear unrelated to search auto-complete. There's just a whole bunch. Like it's a giant study that goes into all the egregious violations. Don't use Edge either. It's pretty terrible. Uh, let's go on to Safari. It's a little better. 
So Safari actually blocks third-party cookies by default, has built-in intelligence tracking prevention. It's designed to identify advertisers and other parties that attempt to track your online activities and remove cross-site tracking data. So it's like, it's it's not a bad choice. Uh, Google, of course, like disputes that this functionality, this intelligent tracking prevention even works. They've kind of dug holes into it. Meanwhile, Safari is like, no, it really does work. You can dig into the details of that. It is all closed source as well, so it's difficult to verify a lot of these things. So I'm going to move on to some options that I think are better alternatives. Let's look at Brave. Who he uses Brave? It's great. If you don't, try it out. You have a whole room of testimonials here who will vouch for how much you don't need Chrome. So Brave comes with slightly more protection right out of the box than some of the privacy alternatives. So I like that. It means that we have to do less in order to make our uh, browsing situation more private. So they block ads and uh, search autocomplete by default. So there aren't any issues of your keystrokes being sent back to your search provider, such as Google. Um, They've also added, you know, they have BAT token. I don't know if you guys use BAT. It's like a cool crypto thing that incentivizes uh, the payments to... Really, it basically takes up the middleman when it comes to advertising. You can opt in or opt out if you don't want to participate in it. You totally don't have to. Um, but I think it's a cool feature that I use quite a lot. Um, and so I, I like Brave because the defaults are privacy conscious. But there are other browsers that are also great if you're someone who likes to tinker and likes to customize. I'll go into some of those as well. But I highly recommend Brave because, as I said, out of the box, it's probably the most uh, private browser out there that's just going to work right away. It's going to be pretty private. You don't have to go and customize settings. But some uh, things that you can customize, so Firefox turns out it's actually really great for privacy uh, because they have a wide variety of extensions that can further bolster your privacy. So for example, it has something called a Facebook container, which is a Firefox extension that creates a boundary between Facebook and the rest of the web to make it harder for Facebook to track you online. So this is a feature that Brave actually doesn't have, uh, but it is something that you have to go into the settings and you have to enable these things. So as I said, if you're someone who likes to take something, tinker with it, customize, Firefox is great because they have some really interesting extensions that further protect your privacy that Brave lacks, but right out of the box, Brave is really, really great. I'll also talk really quickly about browser engines. So uh, underneath the browser, it gets very complicated. Underneath the browser itself is something called a browser engine. So it's something that basically helps your computer turn website code into what you see on the screen. And half of them use Blink, while Safari uses WebKit and Firefox uses Gecko. So Blink is actually a Google product there. So that's something to be aware of, even if it's like an open source thing, what's it using under the hood. The reason why market dominance might be problematic uh, is because developers might stop testing their websites on other Um, engines and not bother with cross-compatibility if someone takes too much of the market share. So it's just something to be aware of. WebKit is actually derived from Blink as well. So you can probably even put that in that camp. So it tends to be that that Blink has a huge market share. Tor is the final one that I want to mention because it's really, really private. It's also really, really slow. It's one of those things that I talked about at the start when we're talking about trade-off between security and convenience. If you guys want to be browsing really privately, download the Tor browser. I would recommend you use the actual Tor browser, not use Tor uh, enabled within Brave, which is also an option. This is made specifically for Tor. So I would recommend this product. Uh, But it does make things run slower. So that's a trade-off that you'll have to be mindful of if you choose to use this. Anyone like not understand how Tor works and why it's a much more... Because I feel like this audience is like 
pretty into this. So like, I'll, I'll just, anyone who's like scared to put up their hands. So, so it uses this thing called, it stands for the onion router. If you think of an onion, an onion is something that has multiple layers. And that's basically how routing happens in Tor browsers. So you start off, you know, I'm, I send out my search query. I'm like, I want to get to this website. I bundle it all up in all these layers of encryption and I send it off. And then the first node, it takes off one of the layer and then it sends it to another node in the network and then takes off another layer, sends it to another and it bounces it around, it peels it like an onion. The idea is, is that whoever, whichever node accesses my query first, they know who I am, but they don't know where I want to go. Whoever accesses this last, they know where I'm going, but they don't know who I am. So it's the way of dividing information so that no node knows who I am and knows who where I want to go. So it's a great privacy tool. I highly recommend you get familiar with it. It's super easy to use as well. Uh, but just another tool in your toolbox there. So I'm going to go on to... I like this one, captures. Uh, anyway, that was, a, that was a really hilarious joke that was integrated into a part that I just cut. So let's move on to search engines. Search engines are a little bit different to browsers. So a lot of people get uh, confused between these. Basically, browsers are like the car that you're driving in to get to the website you want to visit. And then the search engine is like the map that you're following that shows you where it is. So search engines are a way of basically indexing URLs on the internet and making them easily findable so you can type in search, um, uh, keywords and get to your website. Turns out that they're another big privacy hole and there are some that are far more private than others. So the most popular search uh, engines out there We've got these ones up here on the screen. You've got Bing, Baidu, Yahoo, and of course, Google. Google is so popular, we made it into a verb. We can decide, I'm going to Google something. So these are some of the things that uh, these uh, search engines are collecting. But the main thing, I mean, they're collecting all the content of your searches, as well as all this metadata, which is really bad, but all of the content of your searches. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have autofill on, they're also collecting everything you didn't search for, but typed into the box. So that's really problematic. Um, these companies, I mean, they're using all of this information to build personal experience for you, which is great for user experience, um, but there are huge trade-offs uh, to there. There's also manipulation that happens with this autofill feature that I wanted to mention. Like, for example, there have lot, been lots of studies, they've even had like congressional hearings about the biases of these search engines and the type-in function. So for example, when you type in a word, you'll notice that it starts to auto-populate things, guessing what you're looking for. And what it chooses to show you in the auto-fill, it actually really affects your perception of what you're searching for. So for example, if I type in Liberty Forum is, and I get results, it lists, it says Liberty Forum is filled with crazy people. Liberty Forum is dangerous. Liberty Forum is unhinged, you know? Your first perception of Liberty Forum might be a little bit different if they auto-filled it with Liberty Forum is educational. Liberty Forum is fun. Liberty Forum is about bravery or about protecting yourself. So there have actually been a lot of studies that show that this affects you know, elections, this affects all kinds of things. So just be aware of ways that you might be being manipulated by these autofill functions or by what search results you're, you're finding even after you press the enter button. So 
some options that are not Google. Let's dive into them. So pure search engines versus meta search engines. It's important to know the difference there. So pure search engines do all the web crawling themselves. It's actually really difficult. So you think of URLs as being this dispersed things of, you know, websites living on servers all over the world. Like, how do you find them all? Well, you get these automated little bots that go and they crawl through and they create these indexes. And uh, some of them are better than others. I mean, Google's bots are amazing. And so they're finding everything on the internet and they're indexing it. And it's just a great treasure trove of everything you need to find, right? Um, now, meta search engines, so pure search engines are the ones doing that crawling. Meta search engines are uh, different search engines that actually pull results from other pure search engines and then feed it to you in a different way. Maybe it's a more private way. You could use something like StartPage, which is a meta search engine that takes the results from Google, uh, but feeds it to you in a way that doesn't track you as an individual. The trade-offs of that is that you're still being fed biased information. So Google is still controlling what you're seeing. They're still keeping you in a filter bubble. So that's important to be mindful of. But the other side of that trade-off is that they give you much better results. Google is really great at giving you exactly what you want to know because they know so much about you. So they, you know, they're just targeting that directly for you. But DuckDuckGo, that's the product that I use that I really enjoy. I found that there is a little bit of a trade-off when it comes to the results. Uh, Google, often if I can't find something, Google is going to give me a better result. So I might like search for Google, but through start page. Otherwise, I generally use DuckDuckGo for everything. Uh, but DuckDuckGo uh, is both a pure search engine and a meta search engine. So they do the crawling themselves, but they also pull a lot of results from other websites. I'll give you an example of why this may be problematic. So you guys may vaguely remember last year, Tiananmen Square Massacre, uh, when it was the anniversary of this, if you were to look for the image called Tank Man on the internet and you were to search through DuckDuckGo, you would not be able to find a single reference for one day. Wow, <laughs> it was like, it, there was like a huge thing. And that's because they pull their image results from Bing. And Bing, yeah, they said it was a mistake. They, on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square Massacre, they accidentally pulled this image from the internet or they did it to appease China, right? But the problem is, is that because DuckDuckGo is pulling their search results from Bing in order to give you more in-depth results, better results, they were censored as well. So you had the CEO of DuckDuckGo then turned around and said, this is problematic, we recognize this, we've reinstated that image and we're also gonna be drawing on multiple sources, not just on Bing in the future. So that's great that they recognize that, they're trying to fix that, but that is one of the things to keep in mind if you're using a meta search engine rather than a pure search engine is that they're subject to the same censorship and the same manipulation and all of that as the, the pure search engines. So let's uh, keep skipping through. These are other ones, but I don't think we have time to go through them all. Great alternatives. Brave even has a search. All right, let's dive into VPNs. This is a whirlwind tour of privacy. All right, <laughs> VPNs. Let's talk about the ways that VPNs can be useful so you can understand why they're not protecting you in a privacy sense. So they're a great uh, extra layer of protection on your internet usage. For example, you're connected to conference Wi-Fi, you're connected to hotel Wi-Fi, you're at a cafe Wi-Fi. What a VPN does is instead of you sending a search and it going to a website, 
you send out a search and you encrypt it first, you send it to a VPN server and a VPN server sends it to the website. That has different effects. One of them is that your traffic is made private, it's encrypted. So if you're using public Wi-Fi, for example, it's a good way to encrypt uh, any traffic that might have been in the clear otherwise. So great tool. Like I always use a VPN when I'm at conferences, when I'm at hotels, like you just never know which things on websites are being transmitted in the clear. So it's just a good way to be safe. Another thing is that VPNs hide your IP address. So if you're wanting to use Netflix uh, in a country that doesn't allow certain videos or you want to use a crypto exchange, definitely I'm not advocating illegal activity, simply stating that these are great tools for bypassing some of those uh, geolocating uh, websites that would otherwise block you if these websites are not permissible. So the problem with website, with VPNs and why they're not privacy tools is that the VPN company itself sees everything that you're doing and they're subject to subpoenas like every other centralized company. So if you think that you're searching for things and it's all private because just your VPN knows what you're doing, that VPN company is going to be getting subpoenas from governments. If you're, you know, if you're trading crypto, if you're doing the rest of it, I think that they're going to be coming down increasingly heavy-handed on all of these things. So be really cognizant of what you're doing online and uh, and VPNs are not a great privacy tool <laughs> if you're using this um, to, to shield activity that, that certain uh, people don't like. Location of VPN is important because you'll remember that last year there was an activist in France and he was arrested after email provider ProtonMail was forced by law enforcement to log his IP address. Right? We were, do anyone remember that? Kind of mainly, maybe no one. All right. Well, it's a thing that happened. So, uh, so... If that same user had used Proton VPN as well, then their IP address would have remained private because Proton VPN is based in Switzerland and Switzerland actually has really great laws around VPNs. So where your VPN is located actually does make a difference. So they have no logging obligations for VPNs. So there are other countries that require VPNs uh, to provide all the activity of their users to hand over logs to law enforcement. There are, you know, even if the country has a no logs policy by default, many governments can actually force VPNs to to log as the result of things like national security letters. So that's something to be aware of. Um, so in the US, that's terrible. US is terrible for that sort of stuff. However, within the current legal uh, Swiss legal framework, the government there is unable to compel VPN providers to start logging IP addresses. That's helpful to know if you're looking for a VPN. So I think that you know, Proton VPN is actually a very uh, good one. I will say that while um, good VPN jurisdictions uh, versus bad VPN jurisdictions, take it with a grain of salt, right? Because there are all these complex alliances in terms of data collection that exists. So we have like the five eyes and you've got the European Union and you've got all of these like data sharing agreements between countries. So it turns out that the long arm of the US law reaches far and wide regardless of where something, uh, where their jurisdiction actually is. So just be aware of that. Some people say that location of VPN doesn't, you know, isn't helpful at all. I would say that it is and Switzerland is actually a pretty good case. And I say that because, um, uh, like, for example, the, in 2019, they were tested in a court case uh, where they were ordered to turn over logs to identify a user. They were unable to comply because such logs didn't exist. So I, I, you do see, and also they, they um, publish transparency reports as well. So you can see when they push back against government. So I do think that it does make a difference. I would be far more inclined to use a, a VPN base in Switzerland than the United States, for example. Um, 
So there are standards to consider when you're using a VPN. I took these from the Freedom of the Press website. It's a website where Snowden is the president. And all of these, they're very complicated things that we are absolutely not diving into right now. But if you look on the website of a VPN, they will have the specs listed there in the clear. So these are specs that they recommend. And they say that if they're not using these specifications, they need to have a real good reason to not use them because these are tried and tested and they're considered by the security uh, community to be uh, pretty robust. So if they're like rolling their own crypto or whatever, you just like it might maybe a red flag. So you may just want to look at the Freedom of the Press website, make sure that they're going by standards that the security community uh, agrees with. I don't want to end in five minutes, Mickey. All right, I'll go real quick. Um, they also list on their website some examples of companies that you can look at who do adhere to these standards. So I will keep going. Uh, keep in mind your uh, VPN location where you are also plays a role. So there are countries where VPNs are illegal. If you use a VPN in those countries, it actually makes you stand out more. So keep that in mind if you're traveling to those places and you're like, I'm going to hide behind a VPN. It's like, actually, you're going to stand out a lot to those governments. So be very aware there. Let's move on to email. Go do this real quick, guys. It's going to be a marathon. Email is not private. All right, let's move on to the next topic. <laughs> All right, I'll slow down a little bit. Um, so email is a fundamentally insecure protocol. Fundamentally insecure. Edward Snowden says he doesn't even have an email address. I like Snowden, so I'm probably going to listen to the guy who managed to evade one of the most powerful adversaries in the world, the US government. So uh, he says don't use email because it's just not secure. Now, a couple of caveats there. Um, Gmail, just keep in mind, Google has access to everything in your inbox. It, it's all in the clear. They access every personal communication that you've ever created in Gmail, right? It gets worse than that. They not only have access to it, they give it to third parties. <laughs> they sell a lot of that information uh, for advertising. They, um, they actually said, I think it was last year, they swore that they'd stopped selling that information to advertisers, but they didn't st say that they stopped giving it to third parties. And there are actually lots of cases where it's been proven that they hand over the contents of your email to third parties. So don't use Gmail is a really good tip that I will leave you with there. Um, one thing I will say, and I've got to kind of speed through all of these things here. Um, ProtonMail is a great alternative. We just mentioned before there was that court case where they were required to hand over the IP addresses of that guy who was arrested. They couldn't hand over any data. ProtonMail has no access to the data, the actual contents of your email. Um, but there's a, there's a caveat there that I want to mention because it's important. So in order to, because email is like really insecure and it's really difficult to secure it, right? The way that you have encrypted email is very difficult to achieve. Now, if you have ProtonMail and you're sending an email to ProtonMail, that's going to be end-to-end -end encrypted, which is great. So I encourage you to use something like ProtonMail and get all your friends to use ProtonMail. And your emails are going to be a lot more secure. The content's not going to be available. However, if I have ProtonMail and I'm sending it to you and you're using Gmail, Gmail has obviously has access to the contents of that email. So if I'm sending it to someone else, then uh, that's not secured. So keep in mind, if you want secured email, even though they advertise as being end-to-end -end encrypted, it's only if you're sending it to someone else. Now, ProtonMail is a little better than that. If there are readily available PGP keys, they will encrypt it as well using those keys. That's something that Tutanota doesn't do. Uh, so that's why I prefer ProtonMail over Tutanota. But Tutanota is another example of a really great private email. Again, you're sending Tutanota to Tutanota 
Node that's going to be end-to-end -end encrypted. So worthwhile deciding whether you want to make a switch and not hand over all your data to Google. Here are some others that you can quickly look at and we're off. Private messaging. I swear I'm going to be done in time. We've got like, we've got like 12 minutes if I go right to the end, but like maybe 10-ish. All right. Messages. First of all, SMS, not secure. Never use it. Let's move on. These are all the reasons why it's not secure. Inherently insecure protocol. Don't use SMS. You think that you're sending messages to someone. It, like, it's, all, it's easily readable. Don't send SMSs. But luckily, most people have messaging apps on their phones. So let's dive into why some of them are really, really bad, why some of them are okay. So uh, Facebook, they're not great. Uh, they're going to be reading all of your messages. So I probably don't use Facebook Messenger with people. To their credit, they've been trying to add end-to-end -end encryption to their messaging service. The government actually stopped them. So 2019, they announced a big privacy turnaround. They were like, yeah, we're going to encrypt all our messages. And the government's like, no, you're absolutely not. They've been fighting that battle ever since. They've slowly rolled out some end-to-end -end encrypted op um, options. You can start, um, it's not by default, but you can create a secret chat with other people. So it's great, but it's also closed source. I don't think that I would trust Facebook for secure messaging. So let's go on to better options. We've got WhatsApp. Don't use it. All right, next one. We've got Telegram. Also, don't use it. There was an FBI report that was leaked uh, in Rolling Stone a few months ago. It outlined all of the different, uh, compared all the different so-called private messaging apps, what the FBI legally had access to in terms of data. Telegram looked like it did pretty well on that. It was like Signal and Telegram looked like they were like the best ones there. All the rest kind of handing out a lot of metadata and all of that, even if they're so-called private. Telegram, these are the reason why you should not use uh, Telegram. First of all, it's not possible to encrypt the group chats on there. So none of, all the groups you're in, all of that stuff is like saved in clear text in their servers and accessible by anyone who wants to look at it. So all your group chats on Telegram, not secure. Also, uh, the individual messages are not end-to-end -end encrypted by default. Also, they roll their own crypto. They use something called MT Proto, and a lot of security experts have dug into it and be like, why are they using this weird-ass encryption standard? Meanwhile, all the press is out there saying, Telegram, it's a great encrypted chat platform. It's not. Don't use it. You should use not iMessage either. You should use Signal. All right, let's keep going because it's getting, they, we're really running out of time here. These are some other secure messaging apps that are also pretty good. Highly recommend Signal though. All right. That is me totally finishing on time. So I will end this by saying that be aware of privacy fatigue. Uh, you've probably got it right now watching this giant speedy uh, presentation. You're like, ah, I'm totally lost. What's she talking about? Um, you can make small changes just by switching your email, switching which messaging platform you use, opting out of SMS and using something like Signal. Just make these small changes. It goes a huge, huge way to protecting your privacy and stopping the amount of data that you're creating getting leaked into the world. So start making more more informed, more conscious choices in the tech that you're using. It's really worth it. I will end on this. Just say privacy is really important and increasingly so as governments around the world are just sliding towards this you know, totalitarian and heavy-handed tactics. So freedom of the press, freedom of speech, they're in precarious states right now. Uh, if you want to carve out some freedom in your digital lives, there are absolutely things you can do. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't think that because you don't have extreme privacy that it's not worth fighting for any privacy doing these things can actually go a surprisingly long way. Extreme privacy is generally for people who are targeted. For mass collection, these actually go a huge way to protecting your privacy. So highly recommend that you start exploring some of these options. And as I said at the start, 
Governments come and go, but your data is forever. So it's important to take steps to protect it. Thank you so much. I'm a Bitcoin parent.